Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years. We were together for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. I've been divorced for a little over four years now. We have an amazing 25-year-old daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. And my guest today is Cheryl Rhodes, and I am really excited to talk to her. We just met recently, and the organization that she works with just put on a conference for neurodiverse couples, which I had an opportunity to attend. So Cheryl, welcome to the Neurodiverse love podcast. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here with you today. Awesome. Awesome. So I thought we'd start by talking a little bit about something that we probably mentioned on other podcasts, but I think it's worth it to go a little bit more in depth on. And that is what is neurodiversity? Because I use the term neurodiverse love, but really I'm talking about a relationship where one or both partners are autistic. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, and I think that's a great place to start. I think many, many people are familiar with the term neurodiversity. Um, It's used more and more. But it was actually something that was coined in the late 1990s by a sociologist named um, Judy Singer, who was in Australia. She still is in Australia, actually. And um, it was used to describe um, varying traits and behaviors that are associated with neurodevelopmental conditions, but in a non-prejudicial way. Mm -hmm. Um, Many people think about autism and focus on the technical term for it, which is autism spectrum disorder. And many of our other related neurologically based conditions also are associated with disorder and disability. By framing neurodivergent as something that's more a variability that's very, very common within the population, it moves these uh, to something that's really part of the mainstream, as opposed to something that's seen outside of that um, mainstream, if you will. Yeah. So with that in mind, why this is really important for neurodiverse couples and for people who are questioning whether or not they're in a neurodiverse relationship, it really can help shift the focus from impairments towards different abilities. And this becomes sometimes uh, like a light bulb going on. Uh, We see the other as doing something wrong if it's not the same way that we do it or that we perceive uh, a situation. But if we can look at point of view and one that has value and merit and maybe even a lot of uh, strengths and benefits that goes along with it, it it kind of, I think, helps the couple. Um, This is really important because Uh, Research has shown that between 30 and 40% of the population may be neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. And in a recent study that I just read, as many as 50% of people with neurodiversity go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. Um, Neurodiversity can help each partner frame challenges as differences rather than deficits, and also to recognize strengths and talents that are also associated with the neurodiversity. Yeah, Cheryl, I couldn't have said it better. And I think that's one of the reasons that I started the Neurodiverse Love, I call it a movement, and the Uh podcast and the website was because 
you know, my ex and I, when we divorced, we sat outside the courthouse telling each other how much we loved each other, how much we cared about each other, and talking about all the wonderful things we had experienced as well as the challenges. We didn't divorce because we didn't love each other. We divorced because we didn't have the right strategies and tools, and we didn't find out until our 29th year of marriage. So there was so much unintentional hurt, misunderstanding, pain, and even trauma. And if we can, you know, as a universe, not just a community, a universe, start um, educating more people about neurodiversity as a whole, not just autism, but neurodiversity, we can all hopefully feel more understood and validated and appreciated and accepted. So what you just said is so beautiful. And I know it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. And I know that um, there was some research that I read and it basically said that I think it was the CDC, about one in 44 people are on the autism spectrum. And they say in California, it's like one in 22. So I think that's interesting. And I'm sure in other areas, um, they may find similar uh, results. So let me let me ask you to share with our audience a little bit about um, your professional expertise and what got you started working with neurodiverse couples and individuals who are uh, neurodiverse. So I've been a licensed marriage and family therapist for uh, almost 40 years. In that time, I've worked uh, with a variety of populations, but almost exclusively uh, with families who have children with special needs, including autism and related neurodevelopmental disorders. The past eight and a half years, I was uh, director of care coordination at Marcus Autism Center, which is an autism center of excellence in Atlanta, Georgia. And I worked with many, many families who had one or more children on the spectrum, but who also um, had what may be called high conflict Uh, relationships with their partners. Some Mm -hmm. were still together, some had divorced because of those, Uh, some perhaps had never married but were co-parenting. So it was a variety of situations, but the underlying uh, issues were the same. And so I started to learn about and understand that um, if you're a parent and you have a child with autism, there is a possibility that there can be other uh, family members who also are on the spectrum and that this can have a tremendous impact on the couple's relationship. Um, And so I started learning about it. In addition to that, I um, have an adult daughter who has um, developmental disabilities and an autism diagnosis. And she has two siblings. Um, And I um, was in one of those uh, high conflict situations, which now uh, marriages, which now in hindsight, with all of my knowledge and expertise now wonder about um, a lot. Uh Um, And um, (laughs) can give you some examples later. But understanding sort of the stress on a family and the stress on a couple in general, when you have these differences, um, it can it can add a lot. So um, now uh, I do have a private practice. It's actually called my roads map. Um, And um, I work a lot with couples who are on the spectrum. Some of them are families where they also have uh, children or 
other family members who are also neurodiverse, um, as well as working with families who have um, young adults who are transitioning themselves who are on the spectrum. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I wanted to uh, go back to something you said a minute ago, um, which is a quote from Stephen Shore, who's an educator and a self-advocate. And I like this a lot. And I think this will resonate with your um, audience as well. It certainly does for me. And what he said in his very straightforward, uh, wise way is, you don't have to understand autism to be understanding. Mm. And I think that if you see where I'm going with that is that um, a lot of times couples who come to the support groups that I lead, and I do lead two now for an organization called Spectrum Autism Support, want to understand the characteristics of autism. And while I think that's a great, great way to start, as a society, thinking back to what you just said about understanding that neurodiversity and celebrating it and recognizing it as present in a much broader segment of the population than was ever thought of before, that we can be understanding and inclusive in a way that is beneficial for everybody. And yes, along the way, you can understand, but you don't need that in order to be understanding. I had never heard that quote from Stephen. I've heard other quotes from him, but I love that and will probably steal it because I think that is exactly why I started Neurodiverse Love and it's in my mission statement. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding. It's about understanding each other. And I agree, you do not have to read 50 books on autism or autistic adults or any of that. But you really have to look at your partner and your family members and your children for a place of, I want to understand what your needs are, what your accommodations may be, what you want out of life. And I want to figure out how I can be supportive. And I look at how, you know, so many of us do that with their child, with our children. You know, uh-huh. we go out of our way to understand them. But I think in a high conflict relationship or romantic relationship, that can be much more difficult because there's so many other nuances, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so let's talk about some of those nuances. And I call them differences because, yes, they can be challenges, but the differences can also be strengths. So I'd love to talk a little bit about um, some of the social and emotional differences you have seen in neurodiverse families and neurodiverse couples that you've worked with. Some of the biggest ones that you've seen created challenges. Um, I would be happy to do that. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with the strengths. Sure. Um, Because I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, and we're not talking about the stereotypes here, although uh, I won't even list them, but you, you know what we're talking about, um, you know, that you see in movies and books. But there are a lot of strengths that um, people who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent, which is another term I'd like to just um, define. Neurodivergent is a little broader. It's not just autism. It's includes three common types of neurodiversity, which include dyslexia, autism, and ADHD. Some also broaden that to include other neurologically based um, conditions like OCD and um, uh, 
dyscalculia I've yes. heard folks and dyspraxia yes. and even Tourette's I've heard people include that too yes thank you because dyslexia and I should have mentioned that so you're absolutely right so if yeah. you look at all of those that really does cover a lot of people um, and if you listen to me when I talk about some of the maybe the communication challenges um, we all have some piece of this um, uh, issues with uh, focus or perspective taking or flexibility but just in general, to look at some of those strengths, um, they include attention to detail. Um, mm -hmm. And this can include thoroughness, accuracy, um, deep focus, concentration, being able to just really zoom in and focus on something free from distraction, the ability to absorb and retain facts. Uh, many, many people who are on the spectrum have excellent long-term memory and recall. Mm -hmm. um, expertise, in-depth knowledge, high level of skills. Um, in terms of some other characteristics that move us more towards those social areas, um, integrity is supported a lot. Um, mm -hmm. uh, folks that are honest and loyal and have a great deal of commitment to either people or, or causes. And creativity, um, a distinctive imagination, expression of ideas. It's not uncommon that you find um, individuals in some high-tech industries, um, science, medicine, um, gaming, computer graphics, um, and to some some of the more famous folks, the the folks like um, Elon Musk and others who have self-identified visionary people. So mm -hmm. we're not we are talking about strengths that are very adaptive and, and can be very, very positive. Some of the communication and specifically social communication challenges that really can affect folks um, fall into uh, a couple of different quote um, buckets. And um, I'll give examples of each of these. Um, I'll try to be brief. I'm not sure how much time we have. No, but that's okay. We have an hour. We're good. All right. And please <laughs> jump in at any point. No, I'm good pepper this with some real examples, but I will give some. So flexible thinking is one. Mm -hmm. Executive functioning is another. One that's called theory of mind. I know these sound kind of high level, but I promise I'll give specific examples to make them all fit. Um, hidden curriculum, which also has to do with um, social communication. And another is called social pragmatics. And what these have to do a lot or impact is that regulation of emotions and anxiety. Yep. Um, and sometimes also the regulation of attention and impulses. So you, your partner who's perfectly capable of remembering a date from 2002 and what restaurant you were at can't remember that there was bananas on the grocery list that you said verbally five minutes ago. And right. there's a reason for that. Right. Um, uh, especially if something else comes up at the exact same time. And that gets confusing sometimes for people. So mm -hmm. one of the things with communication a lot is that we, um, it, if we're going to um, have a good communication, we have to be sure that we're speaking the same language, quote unquote. And I've heard this a lot from couples that I just feel like we're not speaking the same language. Um, 
And yeah. I, I do remember a conversation with my own spouse many years ago where I literally said, I just don't think we're communicating. And he literally mm-hmm. looked at me and said, I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. I can um, so relate. And I want right? to keep talking about all of these things, but I want to, I want to share with you that I think this is a great conversation because the example that you gave about a partner knowing some great detail from 20 years ago. I mean, my ex knew he knew the lyrics to songs backwards and forward. And I can't tell you how many he knew all the lines to his favorite movies. We'd sit there watching movies for, you know, a two hour movie and he could recite every line. He knew exactly what was going to be able, what was going to happen in every scene. I was in awe, Cheryl. I was, <laughs> I was in awe. I, and I don't think, and this is the thing I want to share with our listeners, because I would tell him often how much I valued and appreciated those strengths that I thought were absolutely amazing because in a million years if you had given me five million dollars I could not have had the memory he had Uh you know I there's just no way in addition I mean he could fix anything you know it didn't matter if it was a you know an Ikea you know, desk that needed to be put together or um, a fan that needed to be put up or electron. It didn't matter. He could take it apart and he could put it back together and it would be fixed. Again, in a million years, I could not do that. And I think I've heard this from a lot of other partners when they compliment their partners for their amazing skill in certain areas they actually sometimes feel like they're being patronized because they don't see it as a skill because it comes naturally to them. And I don't know if you've experienced that, but I have. And so many of the other folks who come to my support group have said the same thing. So, yes, I think that's very common. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so please go on. Please go yeah. on. No, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, want to acknowledge your partner for their strengths but sometimes that's also confusing if the partner um, it has deficits in other areas um, and it just gets very confusing uh, mm-hmm. how can you say I'm so great in this and then tell me you know why you don't understand I? me or why why didn't you change the the baby's diapers I've been gone for five right. hours yeah something like that yeah yeah so this whole idea of hidden curriculum and I've got some uh you know if we have time just a few um tips for partners yeah but um this it's very important um because basically what it is is that one partner is talking about one thing and the other is talking about another Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example, um, working with a couple where, um, the, uh, the wife was expressing frustration, um, and saying, I don't know if I can really, um, give you what you need. Mm-hmm. I don't always understand, but I really love you. And I want, I want us to stay together. And, um, and I really want us to be, have better communication. And when I, 
asked the partner what he heard, what he heard was she doesn't think our marriage is going to last and that um, we're going to stay together much longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, now the truth was that she had doubts about that, but she right. was also expressing a commitment that wasn't heard. Right. Um, and so that sometimes can be confusing. Another thing that happens, especially with social communication, is, um, is if people are not uh, doing what uh, most of us do naturally, which we have a communication, right? You say something to me, I listen, I think about what you say, and I say something back to you that's related to what you just told me. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't have that receiver and sender understanding each other's messages and giving that other person feedback, it's very difficult to both initiate and maintain conversation. And I hear this a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, We can go for hours without saying anything. Or Mm -hmm. I ask him how his day was and he says, good. Right. (laughs) Right. But you you asked me a question and I answered it. Exactly. And then and then as the non-autistic person, we lose patience because how many times can you hear fine? You know, about about your partner's day, you want to hear details, you want to process and and they don't think they've done anything that should set you off. And so getting to the root of why we have different communication needs is very important in getting off that communication roundabout or that constant conflict. Can we go back to that conversation that you had or the couple had that you were working with? So what did you say when the, it sounds like the husband said he heard what he heard and it was different than the intent of the wife what did you say to help them bridge that communication gap? Well, what I try to do a lot in those situations is to use a technique where you ask the person who is the receiver of the communication or the listener mm-hmm. to, if it's at all possible, some people are, I'm about to say, turn to that person. A lot of people are not comfortable. Right. This is an aside, but I've had some uh, couples the partner on the spectrum saying, I can listen or I can look. I can't do both. If you really want me to listen to you, which I'm really trying to do, then I'm much more comfortable if my head is down or I'm not facing you. That's also a difference for the, say, the non-autistic partner. But if you can get to a place where you can ask your partner what's most comfortable for you to deliver and receive communication, then Mm -hmm. that can also benefit you. So in this situation, I did say, look towards her and just tell her what you thought you heard her say. Yeah. Um, And then he did. And she, uh, I'll just share this with you. She kind of made a face and shook her head. No. Mm -hmm. And he looked a little surprised. And I said, well, uh, why don't you ask her to say again what she said? And she repeated it again. Mm-hmm. And the second time with that more focused listening, he was able to say, uh, uh, but she said, but didn't you hear me say, I really do want you to give me attention. I, I just, and she was a little more clear about the kind of attention that she was seeking, for example, mm-hmm. in that case. And 
Uh, so we talked about it and um, then did the same exercise again. Tell me what you heard. And but I to do that or I don't know how to give her what she wants. So I said, well, let's ask. Um, and it actually was a very lovely exchange because um, she said, well, I really like it when you touch my head and rub and my hair. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what he said. And I said, are you willing to do it now? Um, and he did. And her whole expression changed. She smiled. She softened. She looked at him. And she said, that was great. Mm. Um, and so that was a really nice exchange where, um, you know, she was able to say explicitly very much what she wanted. It was very simple things. I'd like you to greet me in the morning. Morning greetings are really important. Um, maybe we'll have a minute for this, but how you start off the day can set that tone for communication. And if couples are not used to really communicating in a way where they see and hear each other, it's it kind of sets the tone for the day. So she really liked it if he would say goodbye her name. I love that. And let's talk about that because I know um, with with various methods, I know the Gottman method and Imago therapy and a few others, they talk about, you know, the soft startup and more positive communication is necessary in a healthy relationship. Um, and so I think that a lot of couples that I've had the opportunity to work with and get to know um, they're sometimes afraid to share what they want or need because, and I think this is just people in general, because what if your partner says, no, I don't want to do that. Or I can't yes. do that. You know, I mean, that's hard. However, if we don't give our partners an opportunity to hear what we want and need, we don't know if they can do it or if they're willing to do it. I mean, sometimes they literally can't and sometimes they don't want to. And if they don't want to, it's an opportunity for us to understand why. And I'm just going to give you a, a really simple example. One of the men that I was dating um, after my divorce, I said that I wanted um, a certain type of touch. And he said, no, I won't do that. And I said, well, can you help me understand why? And he said, I have intimacy issues and I can't do that. And I got it. You know, he, he's neurodiverse too. And if I hadn't understood neurodiversity and I hadn't asked for what I needed and then he hadn't been comfortable explaining to me why he couldn't do that, that could have been a major, major conflict in our relationship. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And along those lines, some people who, quote unquote, have intimacy issues, it may also be um, uh, a sensory issue yes. uh, that gets translated as a, um, an intimacy issue, unfortunately, because the, the cues or the understanding are misread. Right. So sometimes people... Um, are very, very sensitive to touch um, and need a much lighter touch. And other times people who are hyposensitive might really be more perhaps aggressive, come across as aggressive. Um, and then there are also folks people uncomfortable to give touch or connect physically with somebody, but they don't like it. They don't like to be the receiver of it. Yes. 
And I hear those things over and over and over again. Uh And so this goes back to focusing on the strengths that we each have as individuals, understanding them ourselves, and then being able to communicate them to our partner, but then also being able to communicate our wants and needs and the things we can't do and the things we're just not comfortable doing. And I know sometimes with the help of a coach or a therapist, couples can get beyond that I don't want to do it because yes. like you said, it could be a sensory issue. It could be a, a sensory issue related to sound or touch or the feel of a substance. Like, you know, you don't want to eat a particular item and you know, that's one of your partner's favorite things to cook. And then you find out that it's because of the, the sensation of yes. the food, you know, it's not because they don't like your cooking. It's the sensation. So all those things are worth exploring, but if we come from a place of judgment, which I know, Cheryl, I did throughout my marriage because I didn't understand, um, it really does put off our partners and it makes for high conflict. So can can we get back to some of the strengths you were talking about and then some of the ways in which you've helped couples deal with differences? Were there other things you wanted to talk about related to those strengths you mentioned? Well, actually, I wanted to go back and mention a couple of other things with the social communication, because I really find that this is, and then we can uh, obviously go back to the strengths or the, or the challenges, um, whichever way uh, you, you, uh, you want to go. But within the communication challenges, I know I mentioned, um, you know, something called hidden curriculum. Uh, Another aspect to this is understanding what are usually thought of as unwritten or implied social rules, like knowing Mm -hmm. what to do or say in various social situations. And this happens a lot um, in uh, situations where the person who uh, is neurodiverse either doesn't understand or doesn't comply with those social rules. Uh, For example, um, you know, there is a social norm that if I say, hi, Mona, you say, hi, right? Right. And if I say, how's your day going? That you don't say, I've just spent the last four hours and go into a really in-depth conversation when, you know, or I might just meet you and say, hey, how are you? Do you know where the restroom is? Um, And then you might say, well, what do you need to know for? Um, (laughs) So whatever it is, it can affect people in social situations. And sometimes this becomes a problem with couples, especially if you're out with families or in a group. Um, And if it doesn't go well, it can affect, you know, future relationships and future social relationships of, you know, uh, with friends and such. But again, it's very, very common. Um, And then the other thing that I think is important is something that's technically called social pragmatics. But these are um, more nonverbal communication. Right. Like your gestures, body position, facial expression, and tone of voice. And this can go both ways. So if you were maybe not saying a word, but your facial expression was expressing something that your partner was able to pick up on, they might react to it. But sometimes one can um, misunderstand what that really means. So for example, I was in a situation with somebody 
where I said something that was uh, sarcastic, but I meant it in a joking way. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, they uh, challenged me about it. And I said, I was only joking. Um, and they said, no, you weren't. And they were adamant. And I said, I was, I really was. And they said, but I saw your face and you weren't smiling and you never laughed and you never said, I'm only joking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, beca- it was difficult to get beyond that, um, that difference. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was important to see also that I have to make sure that there's um, a good fit or a good match to not be confusing by either my tone of voice or that my facial expression matches what I'm saying to make it easier for the other person to maybe read and understand my nonverbal cues or communication. Yeah. Um, And that can be really challenging, Cheryl. And, and, you know, sometimes, and I've said this before on the podcast, when we get into a romantic relationship and we know that the person that we're seeing dating or moving in with is autistic, it's a very different, I think, relationship than if we've been with that person for 10 years, or in my case, you know, almost 30 years, and we didn't know, right? So there's all these things that we've talked about in this first part of the podcast that we've already taken as a negative or a misunderstanding. And so there's that trauma, that hurt that, you know, we have to work through, Otherwise, changing behaviors or the way in which we act with our partners without fully understanding and valuing that there's been a change may not be seen in a positive life light, even though it's meant in a positive light. And, you know, I'm sure there's there's examples that I can give you. Um But I think that that's a thing a lot of the folks who come to my support group are dealing with because many of them have been in their relationships for over 10 years. Yes. And then, and this is the funny thing, COVID has actually been the contributing factor to their partner going and getting diagnosed or having a self-diagnosis because they spent all that time with each other and saw things they'd never seen before. I don't know if you've seen that too. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So, so you bring up so many strengths and so many important um, issues or things that may come up in a relationship that both partners may not understand the other's perspective. And I think that perspective taking is so important. I know people use the duck bunny um, picture and yes. the picture of the old lady versus the young girl. And we can see both sides or we can see only one picture and we can't see the other. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, do you want to talk a little bit about um, perspective taking at all? Uh, yes, actually, it was the very next thing I did want to talk about. Okay, so great. this is great. <laughs> um, 
this is something that may seem very, very simple, but can become a major, major um, obstacle in a relationship. If you think of what Mona was talking about, these drawings that show two different perspectives, the, the old woman and the pretty young woman, the duck and the bunny. And if you've never listeners to this podcast, you can Google these and you can see images. Um, technically, they're called figure ground. Um, and if you look up just figure ground drawings, you'll see there's another that's a vase and you either see the vase in the middle or you see two faces in the outline part. Um, what's more important is to see what you see and if you know that there are two different perspectives if you're able to shift yours. Mm -hmm. So let's just go to the duck bunny. There are some people who just see the duck and some who just see the bunny. There are some people who, if you say, oh yeah, those might be ears. I, I, uh, yeah, okay, I get it. And then there are others who are like, absolutely not. It is just a duck. That's a bill. Those are not duck ears. Right. No. Um, <laughs> now, it's a drawing. It's a small issue. But think of it as some major thing in a relationship. Um, I want our children to um, only watch certain things on television. Um, if there's no ability to perhaps take a perspective of why maybe there's another view that could be just as valid, um, then it's going to be difficult to have a conversation that um, allows each person to understand the other's thoughts, feelings, and intentions, mm -hmm. and really be able to reach, read each other's cues. Uh, just like the example I gave, if that person could not see that there was a possibility. Yes, sarcasm is a much harder thing and humor in general is much harder to get this perspective taking on. It's a good it's a good analogy to duck bunny, really. And if somebody really can't see that, there's no way that they're going to necessarily interpret your thoughts correctly. So a lot of times I, I will talk with folks and say, even if that's not the way you see it, um, is it possible that her feelings are also valid or her thoughts are also valid on this issue. Yeah. Um, it's so that the perspective taking can lead to, if, if you understand that there can be two perspectives. And again, going back to what Stephen Shore said, you don't have to understand autism, but you have to have, you have to understand that somebody else who you love and care about has a different perspective. Uh -huh. And I know Cheryl, it was so hard hard for me it really 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 was because some of the simplest things that came naturally to me and that I saw as strengths within my personality I just they just didn't come you know to my ex and not even come easily they just didn't come and I remember once it, it happened often but I, I this sticks in my mind um I could go into the refrigerator and I could find a few things and I can make a dinner for us in 15 minutes. Uh -huh. He never understood that. Okay. Because he had to plan. It usually took him to be honest with you, an hour and a half to two hours to make a meal. And it was always fantastic. You know, the attention to detail and all of that it always actually tasted probably better than what I made, uh -huh. but, <laughs> but he couldn't understand how I could do what I could do. And I don't think that he fully 
appreciated it because his perspective regarding cooking was you got to plan it out. You got to have everything out on the counter. You got to have a, you know, a detailed recipe in your head, all these things. But I could understand his perspective. He wanted to take time. He wanted it to be the best that it could. He was a perfectionist. I'm not saying I liked it, that it took him two hours to cook, you know, when I was hungry, but I think I had a little bit more understanding in that area. And then I think there's other areas where he had a little bit more understanding than I did of what he was going through. And again, this is before we knew we were neurodiverse, but that perspective taking piece is so critical for good communication and low conflict in any relationship, but especially in neurodiverse relationships. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I, I do think that it's not fair to say that it's only limited to neurodiverse relationships. I really think it's true for any relationship. And I think that would be one of the uh, best areas for folks to work on if they want to try to improve communication in any relationship, whether it's with um, a sibling or a boss. Um, uh, I remember being in a situation where I had a very, very difficult boss um, who was quite demanding and refused, I would probably add, not just couldn't see it. She was not neurodiverse, but where she could not uh, entertain another perspective mm -hmm. on a particular area that needed problem solving. And it kind of probably took all my strength and <laughs> training yeah. to be able to finally say, I get it. This is how you see it. And I um, said, you know, I want us to be successful here as a team. Mm -hmm. I'm going to fully endorse and support your perspective, which is different than mine. Okay. Right. But it, it took that recognition that it wasn't that that person was bad. It wasn't mm -hmm. that they were dumb. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the things in, oh, it's so frustrating. You right. know, it was that it was a different perspective um, right. and I had a choice. Right. So that understanding of that other perspective, I, I agree with you. I, I, it's so important. It's critical. And, you know, I've said this on the last few podcasts, the um, Gottmans, Julie and John Gottman from their research, they say that 69% of conflict and problems that couples will have are perpetual problems, mm -hmm. meaning they're not solvable. And it may be that in a neurodiverse relationship, it's even higher than 69%. And the reason they say that is because these are things that are that are due to the wiring of the individual. And so um, if you know that fighting and disagreement about something that is very maybe important or is kind of a rule or is, you know, kind of a, I'm not going to change my viewpoint on this um, to fight about that, which again, I raised my hand, I did it, you know, because I didn't know about the perpetual problems. And I didn't necessarily know how important the perspective taking was. Um, I fought until I was blue in the face. And sometimes uh -huh. that was for hours and hours of screaming and crying. So, you know, I've said it on the podcast before, and I'm going to repeat it to our listeners. There are going to be 
so many things that require both partners to accept the other's perspective. Doesn't mean you have to agree, but look to understand and figure out how you can move past those 69% of the problems in your relationship, which are perpetual, not because you're bad people, but because you just have different wiring. So, so do you want to share anything more about perspective taking before we move on to uh, some other topics? I would like to add one more thing. I hope this isn't overload. But sometimes when um, one is trying to understand um, another's perspective, there still is this um, deep down belief that they're wrong. Yes. So you might say, well, I understand that it takes you two hours to create a dinner, but I think that's really crazy. Do you see what I mean? Oh, I said it many times. That was the wrong thing to say. Right. So it's, yes, I accept that if you're going to cook dinner, it's going to take two hours, but that's really crazy. So therefore, I'm never going to ask you to cook dinner, except when we have, I'm never going to ask you to cook dinner when we have to add, eat on a a quick meal or something. Um, That's not showing respect for an individual difference. That's sort of... uh, it's um, negating. It's, it's negating, negating it. It's judgmental. And I right. did it all the, well, not all the time, but I did it a lot, especially in the, in the last probably eight to 10 years of our marriage. And, and I think let's reframe that Cheryl uh-huh. and, and a better way of communicating, like my feeling in that situation would be, I love it when you take time to cook a meal and you know, I love the end result. So you let me know when you want to cook. And, you know, I'm happy to help in any way that I can. That would have been a better way of saying it. And then I know when I'm really hungry, or I'm hangry, Uh I need to eat a little snack, or Uh I need to be the one taking the lead to cook. Yes, it would have been a whole different world if I had had that way of looking at it. What are your thoughts? I I agree 100%. And I think that I would suggest going along with the Gottman um, insights would be look at your results. That Mm -hmm. if you are able to take the perspective of another person genuinely, sincerely, without judgment, it's really hard, but without judgment, you'll see a softening or a shift on the other side. Yes. it may not be the first time because right. I, I know <laughs> that when I would shift sometimes my tone or whatever, I'm not sure my ex believed that it was real. And exactly. I, I, I hear that over and over again from other right. couples, you know, I've been really positive and I've been kind, but you know, he or she doesn't believe me, you know, they think I'm being patronizing. So right. it does take time. Yeah. I would, right. I would say but, keep practicing. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's an expression that the, the kids use or people do now about check yourself that just it's something if it's if there's not that I would just say just notice your own uh, language, your reactions, or if you really do have a judgment about it. Because, again, going back to your example, you know, you could have um, done a lot of other things that could have had a lot more positive results. So that would be the last thing about perspective taking. It's not just real. It's that ability to shift. There's two parts to it. One is that people who are more flexible are more, have an easier time in life. It doesn't matter 
who you yeah. are, what you're about, right? Yeah. That's what problem solving is all about. I need a screw. I don't. What else can I use to fix this thing? It's right. the same process, but the other side of it. So it's the flexibility versus the opposite, obviously, that just digging your heels in and refusing to change. But beyond that comes that, you know, judgment and acceptance with yes. your partner. So, yes, yes. So really important. important. Absolutely. And I'm going to give another example. And I think I posted this on Instagram and I think it is a perfect example of where flexibility for my ex was looked very different than flexibility for me. And so we were, I live in Florida and we were going, we had a hurricane warning. So he was able to create a system where we could charge our phones through, he lived on the second floor of an apartment building and we could charge our phones through his car because of what he had rigged if the electricity went out. In a million years, Cheryl, I would never have thought to do that. And I looked at him in awe. And it was mm -hmm. his flexible brain, in my opinion, his creative brain that allowed him to do what he did and to make sure that we were safe and we were going to be able to communicate with our daughter and our family if the hurricane was, you know, disastrous or, or there were major issues and we had no electricity. Okay. His flexibility in that area is equal to my flexibility in the kitchen. Yes. But in very different ways. And if you don't understand and you judge, which again, I did raise my hand, your partner's flexibility, because it's not the same way you're flexible, again, uh -huh. can create challenges and conflict. Yes. So, yeah, that just came to my mind. Yeah, I think that's great. So so I want to talk about, um, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to talk about with strengths and challenges related to communication and kind of social and emotional differences, because I know those are areas where a lot of couples have challenges. I, you wanted to share? Yeah, yeah. I do. I can certainly give a few other um, suggestions that I think are really helpful. One is to um, recognize those behaviors and traits that are based in neurology. Mm -hmm. Not all are. We mm -hmm. also have a personality. Right. And some people also have other um, situations or conditions that may stem from or be related to let's say the, um, the autism, but it's not the autism. So for example, that might be depression or it might be anxiety. Right. And it's those, those other things that are actually causing the, the, the problem. Um, sometimes I heard people say uh, about their partner's autism in a way that they're blaming the autism for whatever the conflict is to recognize that there are some behaviors and traits that are based in neurology, but not all of them are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that's important. Yeah. Because yeah. there are other behaviors that may come out of it. I know this isn't the purpose of this, but I'm just going to mention um, something like uh, maybe aggressive behavior or um, uh, drug or alcohol dependence or something like that. Um, I would love separate. to talk about that. I would love to talk about that, Cheryl. I actually did a podcast that I published a few weeks ago, and we talked about that. And, you know, it was the first time that I really went um, a, a little bit in depth into that. Mm -hmm. 
Because I do think that that is really, really important, especially for neurodiverse couples to understand that, and I'm going to say this, and I hope that um, I'm saying it in a way that is respectful and uh, kind. So please feel free to add whatever you um, want to add on this. I think for a lot of folks, whether they're diagnosed or undiagnosed, there can be a lot of anxiety. There can be a lot of loneliness. There can be a lot of depression. There can be a lot of OCD. There can be a lot of what we call comorbidities. And especially when you don't know that you're neurodiverse. And so I've heard over and over again about addictions, whether they're alcohol, drugs, sex, um, exercise, um, purchasing certain things that are part of their special interest. And by doing those things that look like addictions, it helps with anxiety. It helps with regulating the person's system that is really dysregulated because of a variety of things. And I do believe, Cheryl, that there's probably more autistic individuals who are in um, rehab and are in our criminal justice system and our juvenile justice system than we will ever know. That's just my, that's Mona's theory. And I said it on the last um, podcast that I published when we talked about this, because we don't assess for that. Right. And I do believe the same with child welfare. And I spent many, many years in the child welfare system. And I do believe that this is probably in the domestic violence cases, that there are probably a lot of undiagnosed folks who have never learned how to um, regulate themselves and how to deal with their emotions and anxiety. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, if you want to share. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Sometimes perhaps the reason for the behavior is different, but I think the result is the same. Um, Especially with the... um, the domestic violence. And let's be clear, uh, sometimes we're talking about the obvious, but sometimes we can also talk about, um, and I guess we don't have that much time to get into it in depth, but what people refer to as gaslighting, where uh, the one person makes the other person feel like their perceptions and their beliefs and their thoughts are just completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, We hear this a lot. Yeah. It makes me feel crazy. I'm, I'm just crazy making behavior. Sometimes it can be verbal. Um, and sometimes it can be um, threats or um, other types of abuse. And I would just really want to say if there's any of your listeners out there who this is resonating with and somebody's there shaking their head, yes, um, there are, uh, you know, national and local options for domestic violence. Nobody should ever put themselves in a situation where their safety is in question. I agree. Um, And they feel that they may have be in a situation that's dangerous or where they could be harmed. Yes. Having said that, um, so you have to always set limits and boundaries to make sure that you're safe. Um, When it comes to the domestic violence, when it comes to the abuse, uh, again, drug or alcohol, I think a lot of that can be confused and perhaps have serve a different purpose 
uh, perhaps in an adult who's neurodiverse, although the behavior still looks the same. Just yeah. like a lot of the behavior with folks who have ADHD and autism can uh, look the same, but they kind of come from a different place, if you will. Like the person with autism can be super, super focused. We mentioned that before and stay focused on something to the exclusion of other things. The person who has ADHD may also focus but have trouble attending and they're much more scattered. So mm -hmm. maybe that aspect of executive functioning, concentration, but it's gonna look different and it's gonna kind of come from a different place, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I think these are important issues. And, you know, one of the things that I realized, Cheryl, is there has not been a lot of research on what makes for a successful neurodiverse couple. I mean, there's, yes. a, there's a few research um, studies out there and dissertations that have focused on the challenges. But I really think, and, and this is part of my mission, to help um, figure out how we can get more information out there on what makes for a healthy, strong, respectful, trusting, neurodiverse relationship. Because I, this is, again, just Mona talking, I believe it's different things than a neurotypical relationship. Yes. Because if your partner can't look you in the eyes you and you don't know they're autistic, you think they're hiding something from you right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If, if your partner can't talk to you when you're emotional, you wonder what is wrong. And when you're able to look at your partner and your relationship through a neurodiverse lens, it literally can change overnight. And I've heard that from, from partners. Once he got the diagnosis, once she got the diagnosis, once they got the diagnosis, everything began to make sense. So I, I want to end on a, on a positive note. We've talked about a lot of really important things. And I think one of the things that I hear over and over again from um, couples is kind of how to balance everything, you know, and how to balance work life family life, you know, a romantic relationship with your partner, if there are children, how to, you know, balance those three things. Then if there are family members that have requests of you and your partner, as well as friendships. And so I'd like to ask you to share maybe some of the tools or strategies or even techniques that you've helped couples kind of implement maybe create that balance in either all of those areas or some of those areas. What has worked? Oh, Mona, you've hit on some really important issues. I here. know. And we can, go, uh, we can go over an hour. It's okay. All right. Okay. So one thing I think is really important is resiliency. Um, it's probably one of the keys to a successful life in general, but that means the ability to kind of just, just, um, uh, get up and not let the the uh, the uh, everyday uh, or even some of the bigger challenges in life really really drag you down. So being more resilient and how do we do that? We we do that by taking care of ourselves. I talk a lot with partners and and try to do this for myself as well. Um, that self care has to be part of 
you and you have to make sure your partner does that as well. Mm -hmm. um, there has to be respect between the two partners. Um, there is also something that comes some real benefit from kind of surviving the tough times. It, it, it's whatever it is that a couple is going through. Um, it can make you stronger. It can make you care about each other more. Um, so respect, acceptance, acknowledging your own strengths. We talked a lot about the strengths of the partner. Those who are non-autistic, um, those of you who are in relationships and, and having them work and being successful, it's a real credit to you and your strength and your commitment. So I think that's important to acknowledge. Um, to recognize these different languages, I think we're also seeing the value in having a diagnosis to be able to create a, a framework for understanding some of the differences and some of the challenges. And then I think the last thing, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about this with you, mm -hmm. is um, this idea that, you know, we mentioned also about uh, uh, Stephen Shore has another quote that says, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Right. Well, I think that couples also have a uniqueness mm -hmm. that you could say every neurodiverse couple is unique. And yes. I think sometimes there's a problem that comes. Um, and one would hope that coming to podcasts like yours and um, support groups for both partners and for couples can help people realize that they're unique, their journey is different, the, the one tool or tip that's going to work for them may not be the same one. But in, you can generalize that to realize that, yes, your journey is unique, but you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Your I journey is unique, but it's not a lonely journey mm -hmm. and that there are others out there with whom you can um, commiserate. You can make sort of snarky jokes. I'm a parent of a child with special needs. I can say things with my peers, mothers of special needs, children and adults that somebody else might not understand. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm with a group of people. Uh, who are neurodiverse, I can say other things, the partners can say things, um, you know, this sort of that, that secret language and being around folks who understand uh, can be so very, very beneficial. I'm not sure if that answers. Yeah. I can go through some specific tools and tips too, if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Maybe, maybe one or two, that would be great. So one thing I find that really is helpful is to, um, come up with a way to um, take a pause or a timeout that sometimes we get so bogged down, just as you were saying before, um, in the situations where you can't get a resolution and yet we push and push and push and try to, that if the situation is getting too heated, sometimes we talk about people getting um, triggered or emotionally reactive, or in other ways where our literally our, our ability to perceive, receive, and process information kind of just either shuts down or we become much less able to do that, to be able to take a time out. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. literally to, you know, either make that T sign 
or the thing that um, is a technique that I've used very effectively is to have people come up with a, a code word mm-hmm. that they use to be able to let the other person know when either they're feeling overwhelmed or they just need to take a break. Um, and if they say that, that the other partner knows that and they make an agreement that they will um, just stop where they are and come back. Yeah. Um, and so I that's think one. Yeah. And that, that one is so important. Um, I know I flooded my ex all the time Mm -hmm. and I know he triggered me and I triggered him. Um, And, and I think that it's really great. We do it with children time out, you know, when they're getting flooded or you see them triggered by something and um, it, it may be a five minute timeout. It might be a 20 minute timeout. It may be a 24 hour timeout. But I do believe that the person that's asked for the timeout or to have some time to get re-regulated needs to also say, okay, can we come back in two hours? Can we save this until tomorrow morning at breakfast? Because I know over and over again that things we had timeouts or we walked away from each other or whatever. And then we never got back to addressing the issue. And that can cause a lot of frustration and even more conflict. Right. Right. It's not, it's not meant to be, okay, this is your past. We're never going to talk about this again. Right. Uh, But the similar thing that's also, I think I've just heard people say, this is very, very helpful is to realize, and we, we sort of talked about this before in one of those areas of challenge, but the way information is processed and Mm -hmm. maybe even a processing speed can be very, very different. So if uh, you, for example, or I, who we can both say are, very verbal people who can talk very quickly and, and get a lot of words in very quickly and a lot of ideas. We're talking to our partner. That partner may not be able to react as quickly. So, you know, I might say six things and then say, well, what do you think or what should we do? Right. And the partner can't respond. Um, if you can slow down the speed at which you talk to the other partner and also limit or, um, reduce the amount of different concepts or literally maybe the number of sentences that you use when you're talking that can make a huge difference in terms of um, hearing the other person's communication and and getting what you want which is a, a reaction or a resolution or a response to a question yes absolutely and and i learned over time the less emotional i got the Mm -hmm. better things worked out and keeping the conversation to one item at a time really made all the difference. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. Sometimes our partners and sometimes even the non-autistic or neurotypical person prefers texts, prefers to get an email or voicemail. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for couples to talk about what is your preferred communication style when we've got something that we need to talk about that requires more than a yes or no, you know? Um, And, and once we know that we don't, judge our partner we know that if we're going to have a productive conversation or we're going to get to a resolution we have to respect our partner's way of hearing what we need and want understanding it and being able being able to communicate with us once they hear and understand it so i think those are really really important so other thoughts before we close out 
I love working with neurodiverse couples, um, <laughs> and I know you do as well. Yeah. Um, I find that the um, folks who have um, taken this journey, if you will, and are working really hard, uh, their relationships are just some of the most courageous and creative um, and interesting people that I know. It's probably no accident, perhaps, that they've chosen each other. Um, and when it clicks, when it works well, the strengths that each person brings to the relationship, I think, creates something really, really special. Um, so I, I like to always talk about that as well. Um, you know, I think that, again, it's just a really neat group of very, um, you know, creative and interesting uh, people who really are sincerely uh, trying to um, add something to their relationships and make them uh, satisfying and, and uh, nurturing. Yeah. I love when that happens, when both partners want to work together uh-huh. on the relationship and want to work on themselves. It's, it's really miraculous. It is, it is amazing to see that love turn into understanding and acceptance and, um, just beautiful, beautiful relationship. And, and I want, and I, our listeners, my listeners know, you know, my relationship ended after 32 years. I see it as a a success because I learned so much. We have an amazing daughter. We had Uh wonderful times together. We had ups and downs just like any other couple, but I, you know, I learned so much from my marriage and the other men that I've been with who are neurodiverse. And now I know my dad was neurodiverse. So there's a lot of, of opportunities for growing and learning and understanding things differently. So Cheryl, I know there's probably going to be folks that want to reach out to you and maybe even work with you. So what is the best way for people to find you? Um, I, I, don't currently have a website up. It's down and um, we're working on that. So the best way would actually either be by phone um, and I can give you a phone number. Um, and the other way would be um, email. And I can give you that as well, if you'd like. Or, yes, um, please. Okay. Please, because I All love right, people. So the, okay, so the phone number would be um, 470-957-0500. Um, my my business name is my roads map, um, uh, and, and, your email. and the email is um, Cheryl Rhodes R H O D E S um, two two at gmail dot com. Okay, wonderful, Cheryl. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I know we touched on a lot of issues that are going to be really important to both the neurotypical or non-autistic and the autistic partners, as well as others who are working to help them become the best individuals and couple they can be. And we touched on some issues that we haven't gone much in depth into discussing in the podcast. So I think, um, you know, you gave me opportunity to explore some areas where I think couples are are struggling. So um, thank you again for sharing your expertise for sharing your time and for all that you're doing to help neurodiverse couples and families and individuals. Thank you. Mm -hmm.